is up, y'all? Welcome to the Levers Lads podcast. This is your host of the week, <laughs> Chris. Here with Shake and Tej, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about narratives and storytelling, um, and how dependent humans on are on them to kind of understand the world. Uh, so the basic basic thesis is that um, you know you go through school and you're taught that humans are very logical and factual and kind of these information processing uh, type um, of entities. So for example, in finance, you'll learn about calculating the optimum um, investment for risk versus reward and um, how decisions are made. And it all is presented to you as if um, it's governed by reason. And that is one way to look at the world. It's a very like Western educated way of look at, looking at the world. Uh, but there's this alternative view that, you know, humans are largely driven by stories and narratives that we come up with culturally and individually. And uh, we use those stories to filter the world, um, the information, the raw information coming um, at us to understand the world. Um, and basically taking that look, that lens of understanding whether people are information processing or using stories to uh, understand things and cope with things, uh, changes the way you kind of view the world around you um, and can help you make sense of it. And we see it as a kind of levered mental model um, of moving through the world and understanding people and trying to relate to people. And so we're going to be riffing about that today. Does that intro sound beast to y'all? Sounds dope, dude. I also think uh, an extension to how this, how this ties into levers which I think is, is compelling, um, is if, if you realize that your own psychology is largely governed by this like lattice work of narratives, um, if you're so inclined, right? Like if you're making a decision and for whatever reason you think that this decision will be, um, you, you'll make a better decision if you can remove emotion. Um, if you realize that these emotion tainted narratives govern a lot of how you feel about the world, Knowing that makes it more likely that you can kind of remove that emotion and that um, uh, that sort of like random spontaneous element and make like a more ruthlessly rigorous decision if you're so inclined. Yeah, like if you think that the right approach is to somehow just understand all the facts and then considering all the facts, you'll continu continue to do the right thing you're probably wrong. It's a lot easier to try to get your kind of emotional side convicted in what you're doing and feeling good about it and kind of hack that, uh, kind of hack that natural tendency to make things easier to do it if you're bought in like emotionally. And yeah, kind of, I guess, implicit in what you're saying is the emotional sides kind of gets manifested in this, um, this storytelling aspect, right? Yeah. Um, about the story we tell ourselves about who we are and you know why we're doing things um so i guess to be more practical uh if you're trying to exercise more or work out more you could just like i don't know read about how running a mile a day is good for your heart according to some study in the new york times and and, and maybe that should motivate you uh but i don't think that actually motivates anyone you know, just hearing about some facts or base, or at least is very fleeting versus if you have a reason why you're working out, um, 
because it's somehow related to your personal identity. You're someone um, that enjoys exercise or, uh, you know, if you're out of shape but and you want to get in better shape for your family or, um, you know, coming up with a reason why you're doing it every day that's not tied to numbers but is tied to somehow the story about your identity um, can motivate uh, each to do that more easily. I think, that, I think that's a really good point. And um, if, you, if you can embed... Uh, your motivation in in a really deep emotional appeal, um, it, it it's really more uh, sustainable because that motivation embedding it in emotion, it sort of accesses a different part of the brain, right? Like it it kind of slithers into the subconscious via the amygdala as opposed to like hitting your like prefrontal cortex and like a direct like rational cognition. It's a different thing, right? So like to Chris's point, if you're trying to work out more, like one really effective thing to do is to inherit uh, the narrative or the emotional resonance of a group, right? This is like why people like go and join CrossFit groups because like that group has a really strong narrative, like that tribe has a narrative. And if you go in as a human being, as a social entity, if you go and enter that narrative, um, that's super, super powerful, way more powerful than like, for example, like realizing that like I read a, a news article in Scientific America that says like eating keto lowers my risk of like a heart attack by like twelve percent in this randomized control study over forty years with forty people. Like it doesn't mean anything to anyone. Like you can read that a thousand times and literally never remember it. But embedding things with emotional resonance, I think that is what not only galvanizes the initial change, but it's also more sustainable because um, emotion sticks. It's sticky. It's it it. It, you, yeah. it sort of just like loiters on you in a way that I think it's something factual doesn't. It just doesn't, it just bounces off kind of. I think the connection too between the stories and the group is super important. Um, and it's not like you just come up with your personal story. The narrative that you have for yourself is interwoven with the groups that you identify with and the people in the culture that you feel like you belong to. Um, and so even then, if you try to come up with your own personal story that's just completely removed from, you know, the cultural stories that you, you hear around you, it could be very, it's going to be hard to live by that. Whereas if you, um, yeah, can interweave your story with sto like groups around you, it gives you this, like, um, like you're kind of saying, this emotional, like, bind, like you get bounded to what uh, certain actions um that you wouldn't get if you were either being factual or just being like trying to do your own individual thing. So if you can find, yeah, like this fitness group, you're like, I am a, <laughs> I'm a uh, CrossFit person and CrossFit people do this, you right. know, three times a week. And it like kind of starts to seep into a lower level of your cognition. Then like, that's how you can then get these like really good, healthy exercising habits. I think the, the, uh, the flip side of that too, right. is like, it, it's a double-edged sword. Our, like amenability as humans to inherit narratives from tribes and society and those narratives sort of being a, a proxy for our reality. Like it's, it's usually, it, it can be good, right? In the case that like you want to improve a behavior, if you're inheriting the narrative of a group that embodies that behavior, that's dope, right? But oftentimes like we get, um, we get so caught up in these these fictions really um, that we inherit from society that it, what it really takes to see down to the truth is 
to completely step out, right? Like to completely Ted Kaczynski. And so like, I, th- I think that, 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 that's been really important for me, you know, realizing the frailness of fiat economics. Like I, w- I was taught at WashU, right? WashU Business School. And then I went to traditional finance. I was inheriting narratives for six years, right? I was inheriting fictions for six years, but it can really help um, to see things as they are, which may not be for everyone, right? Like uh, that can be, that can be a very scary place. It can be a very lonely place, but it can help to step out of these architectures if um, you do seek to see what others don't, especially earlier, um, which, which can help particularly in, in investing. Yeah, that's, that's interesting um, to think about. When does it benefit you, benefit you to kind of believe a certain narrative, uh, maybe about yourself or about a group that you're part of, or when, did, that, when it's the opposite? Um, I hadn't thought of like when it's the opposite, but yeah, like I, you know, I think it's kind of, as I'm thinking about this, I, I'm just reminded of like the law of attraction that people talk about. And usually I kind of like bash on it, right? It's like the idea, like you think positive and positive things will happen to you. Um, but honestly, like with a, if you have a positive self narrative, I think that that's kind of a case where I'm kind of, where I'm a, where I would be a proponent of that kind of like manifestation thinking you know because like if we bring it back to uh like a fitness example right like there's there was a time for me where i was like really overweight and out of out of shape and like once i had this like narrative of myself as like someone who works out and is like into health then it then my health changed even but i had that narrative like before i was actually healthy you know what i mean um, and so it's, yeah, I, and it, so I don't even really know what I'm saying, but yeah, personal narratives, I think can be, uh, can be a good thing and, and a bad thing, right? Like if we go back to the guru episode, if we're trying to think of like a bad, uh, a bad example, like the narrative of like, oh, if you're like a smart, you know, uh, if you're, if you're a smart kid and you were brought up well and you work hard, like you go to a good school and you get a good job and you get a lot of money in your 401k, right? Like. That's kind of a narrative um and obviously like we all had a full episode where we kind of talked about you know another side to that but yeah i think yeah. i mean a place that the narratives on the negative side show up is like politics like almost always there's we simplify political positions until like blue believes this red believes this i'm a member of blue so i have to believe this thing right and then they, these narratives are used to basically reduce any, you know, like critical thinking about what you should and shouldn't believe. And it's, and then it's very hard for you to be like, well, I can't believe this thing anymore because if I don't believe it, then I'm not a part of the blue team. Right. And so then you're, you're or your red team, but you're, you're, so your stories can kind of make you indebted to these groups and then they can take control over you. Right. And I think that's kind of what TJ is saying is like, there's this, it's, yeah, it's a double-edged sword where you can use, you can start belonging to a group to get healthy, like kind of healthy stories that, you know, make you do things that you want to do really easily. Or you could belong to certain stories that get you to do things that you don't want to do and you kind of lose your autonomy. Um, and so self-authorship, being able to step out of the, you know, the main, the main stories, the dominant stories, pick what you want and come up with your own is like probably your best chance of, autonomy right so somehow 
packing your own story, still having a strong sense of story without just, you know, taking what uh, was given to you. Uh, which is honestly, like, I feel like this is such, like, it sounds so like, oh, of course you would do that, but it's just so hard to do in practice, right? It's, like, a lot easier to take the stories everyone else believes because, I mean, we're, we're like, social animals. Um, well, I think that's a, a good point, and one thing I'll add is, like, with the, with the blue, and re- blue and red in politics, it's very tribal, but um, I think another way of thinking about what narrative does in that context is... In my opinion, the p- political narratives are deleterious because in many cases they remove nuance from the equation, right? Like if you're red, you identify with red's beliefs and red believes has these eight beliefs on these eight issues. And then blue has these eight beliefs on these eight issues, right? And there's, there's an incentive, there's like a, a, a push to for sure inherit all of those beliefs on all those issues as opposed to like looking at all the issues individually and on average you're some combination of where the blues and the reds lie right like there's no room for nuance because it's much easier to to galvanize a group around a super simple narrative Um, and i think that like a continuation of that is like humans are not it's it's we're not equipped to doubt every single stimuli that we come across, right? Like we're not computers in that way. We don't have the resources to do that. We would be um, in- incapacitated if we had to interpret each and every stimuli and make a decision based on each one. So based on experience, we weave these heuristics, which then we weave into narratives, which help us make decisions, right? And then so politicians, they kind of just prey on that, right? And so they craft this really simple, emotional, resonant narrative and then it's understandable and it's like this little package and you can fit into your worldview nicely um we we don't we we don't have the facilities to doubt everything because we wouldn't be able to operate we wouldn't survive if we doubted everything right like narratives and storytelling like evolved because you wouldn't evolve to be just like purely rational because the world's too complex to actually process the information. And so you need these like heuristics, rules of thumb. Stories are like a manifestation of like a heuristic or a rule of thumb. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I, I think it's kind of interesting. Like, are there, like what are stories that you guys find yourself telling yourselves that, and, and use it to like kind of, I mean, yeah, to govern your behavior, I'm not even successful. govern. It's just like kind of. I am rich. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I am handsome. I am handsome. <laughs> yeah. No, literally, one of them I I yeah. started telling myself because I heard my boy Trader Maine who who ghosted me on the uh, interview request, but I heard him talking about the law of attraction. And like I said, I use I literally usually talk shit about it, but I've been telling myself a story that I'm a good trader, even though I'm not. Dude, you think Trader Man tells himself that's that's a positive. Do you one. think Trader Man tells himself the story that he's a thick neck, <laughs> or does or does he inherit that story from uh, from the crypto Twitter tribe? That's the question. Is it self generated? Is it self authored, or is it inherited? Here's something. <laughs> um, the, the the stories on crypto Twitter are so funny. Like people that I mean, maxis, maxis are just a manifestation of storytellers. They're like you know like. The Bitcoin Maxi that thinks that Bitcoin is going to be used for everything, storyteller. The Eve Maxi that thinks somehow 
all of computation is going on Ethereum, even though it does 10 TPS, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and whoever's not a maxi isn't fucking posting about, about these things on Twitter, you know, which is another thing. The loudest people are the, the yeah. are the storytellers. <laughs> yeah, dude. And they're, and they're smart for doing so. Um, because of this, this whole thing that we're explaining. Right, right? Pomp has like two million uh, fucking followers. Pomp, yeah. And it, the the word thing, worst thing about Twitter is that the uh, the storytelling is very simple now. It's like it's like six words. We don't have any. Our stories are so boring. It's like Bitcoin is inevitable. <laughs> Dude, the stories no plot. The story's yeah. even more boring yeah. than that. It's just laser eyes. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the meme is the message at this point, I guess. So um, something I was thinking about this morning is it's almost become a uh, like a trading aphorism on crypto that crypto trades on narrative, right? It's different because it trades on narrative. It doesn't trade on fundamentals. I've been thinking about that a little bit. And um, I think it's sort of bullshit. Um, all markets, I think, trade on narratives. Crypto is just a younger narrative, right? Like public equities trade on narratives. Bonds trade on narratives. Commodities trade on narratives. Everything trades on narratives because the market participants are all humans, not computers. And so when people... Real estate? Real, well, real so. estate absolutely trades on narrative. Like, oh, this neighborhood's up and coming. Under P. Under P. So if you take crypto Twitter and people are like, it trades on narrative. It trades on emotion. It doesn't trade on fundamentals. I think that's tricky because crypto is so young that... We don't even know which fundamentals are relevant. Like, who the fuck knows? Like, total value locked in DeFi? That could prove to be way less relevant when a bear market, like, pulls all of that liquidity out. And then people look to something else, like, you know, number of wallets that are partial to Aave versus DYDX or something else, right? Like, crypto trading on narrative is just, people saying that, I think is just a... um, an outgrowth of the fact that crypto is a young market and people don't know what the fundamentals are. But Shake, to your point about real estate, I think that's a really good example. Like fund managers, they like to get super like sanctimonious, right? About people throwing money into emotional things like crypto. And so the way I think about the things that they invest in, if we're gonna be super honest, like a productive asset has two drivers of it being um, a wealth generating thing, right? Like you have cash flows, so rents in the case of real estate, interest payments in the case of bonds, dividends in the case of public equities. And then you have capital appreciation, right? Which is, you know, ultimately, what will the market value this thing at the end of my hold? The first thing, cash flows can sort of be put into a model, right? They can sort of be looked at in a quantitatively rigorous way. You can basically say, this is the expected coupon and this is the probability that I'm going to get this coupon. Plug into model. Okay, fine. Model can sort of do it. But that second part, the capital appreciation, you're betting on a narrative. And if you have a well, portfolio- to be fair, you can use Fibonacci levels. <laughs> <laughs> true, true, exactly, you can. You can use Fibonacci equilibrium. The, the second part, the capital appreciation, like you as a fund manager, you're betting on a narrative coming to fruition. Particularly in real estate, I think that's the easiest example to understand, right? The Miami example. As someone who invests in Miami real estate right now, you're betting on actually like a lattice work of narratives. A, Francis Suarez, open towards crypto, open towards innovation, low taxes in Florida, beautiful weather, attractive people. That's one narrative. You're also betting on two bearish narratives. San Francisco, horrible governance, high taxes. People, innovators leave San Francisco, they go to Miami. 
New York, bearish narrative, bit license, it's clamped down on crypto. People will leave New York, they'll go to Florida, right? This is a, it's a cascade of narratives that you're betting on as a fund manager, which is very, very impulsive and very narrative driven, right? You have a portfolio of narratives that if they come to fruition, then they enrich your narrative as a fund manager, whether personally or financially. I think also another worthwhile point is the success of your narrative as a fund manager is denominated and measured in another narrative, which is the US dollar, right? It's a collective hallucination. So I think it's like a lot of people in the quantitative sciences like to say that it's a little bit silly to invest in frivolous things, but like everything is frivolous and everything is emotional and everything ultimately is narrative, right? It is, it's kind of narratives all the way through. Yeah, I actually I think, think this I, is a, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Give it a riff, give it a riff. Well, I was just gonna say, I, I like this riff of, of like narrative driven investments. And I just watched the documentary for uh, WeWork you know, and you had this, have you guys seen no. that? I highly recommend it. It was, it was excellent. But you had this guy, uh, what's his name? Masa Sun, the, Masa. the yeah. president of SoftBank. Um, and he gave this, he gave WeWork like $20 billion. He invested in WeWork, something like absolutely insane. Right. And this is like this legendary investor who's, who's investing in like technology. That's his whole thing. Like, oh, AI, it's AI focused, the future of AI. And he basically bought into this narrative that this guy was selling of like, basically a company that represented like a commune or like community. It's like the like looking back at it, you're like, God, that is the most ridiculous fucking idea I've ever heard, you know? But obviously it wasn't at the time, right? You had like guys way smarter than me dumping billions of dollars into it. And so yeah, I I I, uh, I really liked what you said, Tej. Like, it's not like crypto is like, oh, it's super irrational compared to. TradFi and it's all narratives and it's it's just like no it's everything's narratives right it, and I'm trying to think of that other company where they had the fucking lady who acted like Steve Jobs and it was like you tested oh, your shit yeah what the fuck What's was that, that? called Eliz Elizabeth I can't remember the name Theranos is her name Paul Theranos. 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 Yeah, Theranos yeah um, yeah dude so it's it's all goofy <laughs> shit man and it's like that I guess that's the point of our podcast is like this podcast is like just understanding that is the lever right and like being aware of when it benefits you and right. when um, right. when it doesn't. Right. You, you use use the narrative, like realizing that things run on narratives, realizing the world runs on narratives. A lot use the good ones or or use a narrative to your advantage to enable good behavior and then realize when you're being armed by a narrative. I, 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 I do think there's this... Um... There's an interplay between like the physics and the psychology, right? So there ultimately is like reason or like there's a cause and effect, right? So it's not like everything is just purely irrational. So um, in business, like, you know, like a product has to work, like their engineering needs to make sense, but it, it doesn't, it's just not all that makes sense. So I guess an example would be like the iPhone and Apple. They're a great example of like, their technology is great, and so there's a lot of reason there. But then there's also this amazing story storytelling on top of it. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say that, like, you know, I don't think you guys are saying this, but it's not that it's all irrational. Because some people go there. It's like everything, nothing makes sense. There's no reason. Um, and it's just all emotions. And I think it's just that there, it's a lot of emotions um, that's overlaid on top of the physics. But there is physics there, right? Um, but 
and so and that and that's what and that's why you can step out of the the narrative actually like if you thought everything was just only narrative it would be like how do you pick one but the fact that there is this like underlying reality i think is is good you know because you'd yeah. be like wait like how does this narrative line up with what how i think the physics works right using you know in, in a very generic sense yeah, yeah. I, um, I i at least wasn't trying to say that nothing is real right and it's all emotion I also, yeah i know i also don't think that i don't think nar- narratives narratives aren't inherently narratives and rationality aren't diametrically opposed right like n- narratives often right. help you be more more rational the idea is just that like of course like there are physical realities to this world right and then we've created these abstractions on top of them and 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 narratives are kind of brewed up from that um but I guess I, I was just, I was trying to take a hit at, at kind of like the sanctimoniousness of like, you know, the ultra rational, the ultra rational trying to say that like um, certain things are are free from the effect of narrative and other things are dominated by narrative. And thus the, the first category is, is more important or uh, we should strive for that. It's like, make no mistake, bro, you're a human. You have narratives all the way down. Right. Yeah. You can't just be like, oh, it's going to be all reason. Like, that's just, it's so silly. Um, and I think understanding that, honestly, it's mostly narratives. <laughs> like, there's a little bit of reason there, you know, that like, only when it's uncomfortable will we pay attention to the physics. Only when like things break. So like in WeWork. Where it's like, oh, I just gave you billions of dollars and I've been giving you billions of dollars, but this actually finally doesn't make sense. Or with uh, Elizabeth Holmes, it's like, eventually, you're like, wait, there's nothing here. But it took them a long time. Yeah. But eventually, they did run into the physics. Yeah, did she? But it took them way longer than she she tricked. She tricked a lot of eminent minds. Many, many hundreds of eminent minds she tricked, right? So it's like, no one's immune. Right. I also think there, there's like, like even if you got your nice like Western uh, university like elite degree, <laughs> you went to Harvard, like you you still are a narrative machine. Bro, that's why the twi- the twi- the, twi- the Twitter MBA makes you anti fragile to narratives. Harvard makes you <laughs> fragile. Elizabeth Holmes will you will get got. Uh, I also think like another interesting thing is um, the idea of uh, narratives and fictions avoiding reality actually being more adaptive for people and groups than facing the realities, right? For, for many hundreds of years, um, you know, there was this collective fiction that people, that sort of ran shit called religion, right? And that was really important and that was super adaptive to um, people communing as groups and um, pursuing resources and pursuing goals as groups because you needed some fiction that incentivized pro-social behavior over sort of an iterated game among people, right? But then at some point, it became adaptive, like we're talking about like Enlightenment era, it became adaptive, like reason suddenly became chic and adaptive during that period for whatever reason, right? And so then we flipped to like a more reason, logic-based, STEM-based approach to understanding our surroundings, right? Like we eschewed the fiction called religion, and we engaged, in a lot of ways, a new fiction called science, right? Now today, I think we're at this interesting point where it's not really clear which fiction is adaptive for us right now. Like, religion's sort of waning, like, science has been used sort of to 
fuck things up. But I mean, obviously, science, to Chris's point, it, there, there's still realities there that make up the basis of, of everything. And then, like, politics and the state, that's sort of eroding, too. And that's different fiction. And money's eroding. Like, there's a lot of fictions, I think, that are hitting their trough right now. And it's unclear what the new relevant fiction that allows us to coordinate at mass scale might be. But, but it will be crypto, so... <laughs> I do think I think an interesting thing is I was talking about whatever physics reason blah 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 but science actually has a narrative structure as well especially as it appeal like as it works for normal lay people today um like uh unless you're super specialized and you understand what the science is talking about like you can go work with the models that they're using like science ends up being a narrative for you because you can't verify how right. it works. You can't check the models. Right. And so when people talk about like, I believe in science, I believe in reason, uh, they're actually just like going along with the, the science that they're being told uh, works. Um, and, and it's funny that you brought, brought up the enlightenment and how we shoot religion. Like Nietzsche has this whole point about how, you know, enlightenment, they killed God and they replaced religion with science. And so now like science is our new God. Um, and I, and I always think about that cause it, it, it really does. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. And the reason why is because science gives this like veneer of logic, but if you dig into it, actually, like you can cherry pick to basically make any outcome, um, appear to be science, right? Like, so all the methods are very hackable. And so what that means is like, you can lie with statistics, right? You can lie, you can lie with math, um, so just because someone says something is science, they're like they're using that. Like it's kind of it's crazy how like you can co-op something that is supposed to be non-narrative into a narrative, and then people then their narrative is that they don't believe in narratives; they believe in science. But that is a narrative, <laughs> you right. know. Like, which is, I guess, to your point is narratives all the way down. Yeah, like yeah, I com I completely agree because in science, like how do people do science? Right, like they need money. Like these scientists make money and they need to get grants and who gives grants is like people who are pushing a narrative. <laughs> so even though at the core level, like hopefully like, yes, there's like the scientific method going on and it's like, you know, hard, cold data, but still like just by being selective with what data you present, you're most of the time, at least from what I've seen, it's like it's supporting one narrative or another, right? It has to be funded by somebody and it has to benefit somebody. Financial. I haven't I haven't gone in super deep in this and so I don't have an informed opinion but the whole Wuhan lab leak thing it's like you know when Trump was saying it that's that's completely ridiculous that can't be science like how could you even say that and now Biden's turning back and being like oh th this could be from China and then now there's reports coming out that like Nature which is a really big scientific journal uh, basically wouldn't wouldn't accept papers about the fact that like the COVID uh, like COVID couldn't, it, it has characteristics that don't suggest that it evolved naturally, that it was man-made. And like, they wouldn't publish that. They wouldn't publish that in the journal because it, it wasn't good politics where other articles, it took 12 months to get published. Right. And so there is a gatekeeping mechanism where what gets out to be science is controlled by the institutions that are publishing what is science. Right. And they have political agendas. Um, and like, I don't want to be like super conspiratorial, but it's just, it's just kind of the nature of every human has their kind of bias and their stories. And then like, just because someone starts telling you that some shit science doesn't make it science.
the real scientific method is to not trust anything, right? Like that's real. That's that's small s science. It's to verify for yourself. Um, but we're not we're not about that in America. <laughs> we're about that New York Times science. Yeah, like people say, like, oh, I believe in science. It's like, what the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> like, oh, you believe, like, you believe in the results of this one, like, this one idea applied to everything. Like, you know, it's, like, you can't really believe in science. It's just, like you said, it's a method to, it's, it's a method of skepticism. Yeah, it's an appeal to authority. It's like, I think these, this authority knows what they're talking about. But instead of just saying, like, I believe in this authority, it's like you believe in science because it gives you extra motivation that it's somehow objective. But, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, like, it's not. Like in that so, sense, I mean, where does that leave us? With, with religion versus science, it's almost like religion is like, um, religion is more honest because <laughs> it's like, uh, you got to have faith, dude. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you got to take a leap. You got to take a leap. Yeah. It's like, it's just bear with me here. You know, whereas science is like, no, <laughs> this is a hundred percent real. And you have to trust us. Cause we went to school for eight years. Um, religion is definitely, it's kind of embraces like, yeah, this is an emotional, like it's a feeling. It's not like a thing that you can, you know, map out in a, in an argument necessarily. People try to, but you know. I, I, I believe in science is no different than I have faith in science, my new based God. Right. Also, like, there's something so, when you said that, I believe in science, like, it sort of gave me, like, like it made me cringe a little bit. Like, I, I feel like that's one of those, like, classic things that y you only say if you're trying to defend the fact that you do the opposite, right? Like, if you have to say, I believe in science, that probably doesn't mean you do any of your own lowercase s science, right? Like you're outsourcing your understanding of the world to experts that you do not verify. That's what a belief in science is, right? It's like a, you, you're outsourcing all of your understanding, all your cognition to like a lattice work of specialists, right? And that's how you come to your understanding of, of the natural world. Yeah, I mean, I think in, and then it's like, I, this is where it sounds like I'm just, you just shit on science. Like, well, what are we supposed to believe in? It's like, well, this is where, you know, trying to study like epistemology, theory of knowledge, and like, how do you understand things and what, like, that's why that's important. And you can kind of come up with this like self-reliant right. kind of like understanding of the world, which isn't like all going to be true. It's going to be based on a lot of different ideas and models. Um, and you're never going to arrive at conclusions, but you can, you can look at things from a bunch of different lenses and then eventually arrive at conclusions um, that can change over time, right? But it's not, it's not static and there's not going to be just like one answer to everything, right? Um, or they, and I don't think that's bad. I mean, if anything, that's good. It makes, it makes everything interesting. Like, I don't know. This could be wrong. This could be right. <laughs> like a good... No decision is guaranteed to work. Um, I mean, and, and so. that, that, that approach, like, it's, it's the F. Scott quote, right? Like, the mark of a true genius is someone who can hold two opposing thoughts in their mind and still be able to operate, right? Like, that's a tough place to be in when everything you see, you doubt, and, but you're, you're, you're trying to find out for yourself. So, like, if you're shooting for truth, then you kind of got to iterate on your own. Like, you should read widely. You should understand history. You should get an idea of how humans think, what tends to happen. Like, 
when a certain sequence is going to rhyme again. But like, you got to go out and you got to like put your hands in the dirt to like understand things. And it, it can be, it can be again, like a lonely place to like doubt everything. But if that's how you're wired and you're trying to genuinely seek truth and like be intellectually honest, I don't think there's a replacement for um, experience doing it. Right. Yeah, you know, this is kind of unrelated, but with, um, so yesterday I was, when I was preparing for this, I was like trying to find research about narratives, like in, in psychology, um, like specifically this one thing I can talk about, but I realized like, it's actually hard. Like if I wanted to critically read this research paper, like it's really hard to find it because you generally have to pay is a paywall. Right. And so kind of like you got, I think TJ, you said it like you're kind of outsourcing your cognition to this, like this, like abstraction of what science is or like academia. Um, and it's like, on one hand, it's like, it's efficient, right? Like none of us can like fully understand and actually do the research to understand everything. Like it's, I mean, it's just, that's, that would be ridiculous, right? Like one person can barely know one subject fully. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, I, I forget where I was going with it, honestly. But yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it's hard to even actually do the work scientifically. Yeah. Um, and so kind of to Chris's point, like, it's not like we're saying, oh, science is bullshit and it's all narratives or like, you know, narratives are bullshit and you have to believe in science, quote unquote. Um, but just understanding that there's like this, there's this kind of give and take uh, in the world and that um, nothing is like, nothing is black and white, right? Um, but but it's easy for us to understand things as black and white. Like that's, you know, that's kind of how, just in a very pseudoscientific way, I think that we're kind of, uh, we evolved, right? It's like to believe like, oh, like this is good, that's bad, yeah. and like make these quick decisions on it. Um, that's why this, you know, bipartisan system of politics that we have in the US is like so easy for people to be a part of. It's like, oh, I'm on this team. Yep, this is what my team believes. So. I trust them. And it's like, why the fuck do you trust that team, dude? Like, do you even have any reason to trust them? Is no one, I mean, I don't know anyone who's like a diehard, like Republican or Democrat who like actually, I've, at least me, I haven't heard like a good reason why they're like blindly trusting this fucking abstract team, you know? I think, uh, I'm fired up. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you approach something in science, like a study, they're making some conclusion, right? Like, it's you're not you're not an expert on the subject so you can't dig into it super deeply um like what are you to do i think one like you have to consider like different factors is one like what's the bias of the person that's posting this like maybe you know maybe you don't know usually when you hear about a study it's through like some media outlet that's giving you the story so like why are they giving you the story that's one thing to consider um, two is like, how does what that story says line up with like how you interact with the world, like your locally, your local experience, does it make sense? Or is it way out of touch with how you experience things? Cause if it's out of touch with how you experience things, then you have to be kind of questioning it. It's like, well, this is saying X, but I experience Y, does that make, does that add up? Right. And then also you have your other like kind of mental models about how the world works and how do they how do they line up with those 
and you kind of like try to triangulate like does this make sense does this not make sense and i think a, a good place where this shows up is like fitness and health right like we always thought like oh people are trying to tell you to do x or people are trying to tell you to do y you should fast you should only you should eat three meals a day what you could do is you could try them right if you think they're safe enough to try try them out see how your local experience feels and then compare that to what the study says and then if they don't match then maybe the study's bs and the institution that gave it to you is bs and then now you're informing you're like oh well why was this bs like, oh because it's um you know it views all calories like like they're like it's like a like oil for the body and that's overly reductive so i'm not going to trust overly reductive arguments anymore and then you put that into your like you know lattice work of mental models and i think it's just like this ongoing process of everything you're getting in it's like you don't just blindly you blindly trust it you work it in to your mental models and that's what wisdom is over time right wisdom is like you get you hear these things and then you compare it to what you already know and then you don't believe it and you take actions based on it and the wise people make good actions and they end up you know um just living a good life I think that there's a there's a good um like we, we, we keep coming back to this right like there's no substitute for like listening to your body and your mind to see if a behavior works for you right there's nothing you can't outsource that and I think there's an interesting barbell you mentioned wisdom at the end right like wisdom is just accumulated experience that like masquerades as this intuition right and then people try to share this intuition I, I think a good way to to hedge against these biased storytellers delivering you bullshit that really perpetuates their own agenda is you have this barbell approach between your own experience and accumulated wisdom, right? So like you receive some, some information, some stimuli comes in, you do your own analysis on it, you use some, um, some emotion and some feeling and some intuition about if this works, if it's right, et cetera, et cetera. You're tinkering at a, like a very like today level, like micro level, and then the wisdom barbell, right, is you look at um, you look at history, like you look at the text, you look at like the accumulated experience of everyone who's lived before you, and you look at the long term about what wisdom is still around. So long term history and then like today micro, I think that insulates you against like the bullshit noise and bias that's coming out of like the contemporary storytellers, right? And like I think that's why it's important. Um, like something like philosophy or, or reading about epistemology, like what I think like a, a potential rebuttal to reading that shit is it's like, it's very highfalutin and like esoteric and like, it's an intellectual circle jerk, right? That only like the small group of intellectuals understand. And it's like, you know, it, it's not relevant or practical, but like ultimately the point of reading that stuff is if you, if you, if you amass enough of that, and if there's philosophies that are super old that are still around and people are using, like that can inform how you interact with the world and like how you might see things. And like, this is why I think reading is so, so, so fucking important because you're agglomerating experience from others. And if those experiences, if that intuition is still here, then there's probably some morsel of truth to it, right? Like it, it, it hedges away all of like the weird contemporary bias shit. Right. I, I'm, I'm reminded of when uh, Guru went, Hunter Gavara is Lindy. <laughs> that was the most awesome thing. He's like, yes, Hunter Gavara is Lindy. I was like, That's fucking awesome. but yeah, I, I mean, I, I love what you just said.
That kind of sounded... I wasn't sure if that was British or Asian. Yeah, I fucked it up. (laughs) Fuck. Um, Oh, so uh, I wanted to say, like... You got some... uh... And I thought of this when Chris... uh, The last thing you said, Chris. Like, it it requires you to really go against the grain um, to, to, I guess, to, to, like, become wiser, almost. Um, Like... I don't know. Maybe that's maybe this is kind of a trite thing that I'm saying, but like it, to think for yourself, you literally have to go against the grain, I guess. But it's like it's not easy, right? Like like what we're saying right now, it sounds like oh, it sounds great and shit, but like for me personally, it's so hard not to like fall into like just blindly believing other people's narratives. Um, you have to it's really because it makes sen- it makes sense, yeah. right? It makes sense to to convert like. It's not like this is, I think, an important point. Like, it's not necessarily adaptive for your genes to be a contrarian. In fact, in the majority of cases, it's maladaptive. Yeah. Jordan, uh, JP, Jordan Peterson, has in his whole Maps of Meaning book, um, he talks about like, uh, kind of chaos and order and how humans, we, we actually like have narratives and stories that we tell ourselves that dictate how we should act in the world. And we use that to operate and like go from like figure out the means to the ends we want. And that's kind of what culture is. It gives us the map of how to act with the world. But, you know, the environment changes over time. Um, and so those maps get out of date. Uh, and so we constantly need to up those, update those maps, right? And um, he talks about like the role of the individual is to step outside of the existing maps that we that culture uses and try to find a new, like find the new maps that help us adapt to the new environment. Uh, and how that's super important for society to continue to evolve is to change as the environment changes. But it's actually incredibly tough to do because once you step out of the existing maps, you're confronted with the unknown, which is just like trying to understand the unknown is, is like so debilitating and so hard to do. Um, that is so, it's way easier just to stick into like the existing, uh, frameworks. And he kind of says like, that's why we need to have respect for the individual thinking for themselves. Cause it's those people that go out on a limb, come up with new ideas and bring it back to the society that move us forward. And so any kind of society that, and this is, he gets like, he's so, you know, <laughs> like fired up, but he says basically like, um, ideologies, political ideologies that put down the individual are very bad because they like try to tell you, like they give you this ideological and dogma, uh, like this worldview that it's never wrong. So you can't step outside of it. And that's really bad for society because then there's no people that can go update those maps, which I think is super interesting. And so he like puts a lot of focus on, you know, like the hero is kind of the person who steps out of the existing maps and goes and finds like a new path and brings it back to society. Um, and that's kind of his like archetypal hero, which it's, it's kind of, it's borderline like spiritual. Um, but I, I really like it. <laughs> um, oh, I think it's dope. I feel like that, that, um, that explorer, right? Like the, the one ant who goes out in the frontier, um, like for, 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 for ants who are programmed, like that makes sense, right? Like that, no one questions that. But for a human, the human that explores is the villain until he proves that the new map works, and then he's the hero. 
which is why the like the introductory phase of being that explorer is so so painful and why i think so many people just they're like ah let's let's stick with the simulation let's let's plug into the matrix and, and bool and maybe have sex and eat and have kids and that sounds pretty good right i think that's why you know like it's good that western society uh praises like the entrepreneur or the crazy scientist or you know the author because they're the ones that are like trying to go out there and do something new that's can't necessarily like it hasn't been done before but that updates all of society's models right um and that's super important if we're going to adapt right and that's kind of his that's part of the argument against um you know like socialism planning from the top down is that we don't have all the knowledge we need forever right we need to update we need to update our models over time and i think it's actually super interesting like towards the end of the book he just he defines like evil like we think about evil as like doing something bad but he's like evil is like not acknowledging anomaly or like errors with the model so if you just act like there's nothing wrong with the stories that are being told that's evil like you like being a good person is like stepping out and acknowledging when things don't make sense because when you don't if you don't do that you just end up you can become a slave to these ideas and he's basically goes on to say like that's what happened with like communism and fascism and in, in like during world war ii right it's like you see things that don't make sense but you just keep going with the story and so you have to acknowledge uh, anomaly um to be a good person which is like i've never heard before and i thought that was uh like really interesting I've never heard that either. There was, um, I don't know if you guys saw the, um, the Lex Friedman. Who's the hardcore history guy? Dan Carlin. The Lex Friedman with Dan Carlin, uh, they talk about evil a little bit too. Um, and just right off the bat, the premise is tough, right? Like, what the fuck is evil? How do you define that, right? And the, I think the first thing, like, this is an interesting definition of evil because it's sort of it's sort of independent, right? Like you ask the question, are humans inherently evil? Are humans are inherently good? Like like Hobbes versus Rousseau, right? I think both those are wrong. I think the answer more lies in this more objective definition based on based on certain circumstances. Like humans have the capacity for everything, for the entire spectrum. Right? And if they do have that capacity, then the circumstance, the narratives are what push one to one extreme or the other, right? And so if the narrative is perpetuating and you're the guy that sees, I don't think it's just an anomaly, right? It's you see an, a, uh, a deviation from goodness, right? From virtue or moral, however you want to define those things, and you do something about it. And evil is the circumstance and the bad narrative comes up where people are suffering and you do nothing about it. I think that's that's compelling. It can be applied to the era and the epoch, like sort of independently. Yeah, I think it's uh, even then it's like the story of good and evil, <laughs> right? Like this is clearly good and there's clearly bad, but that itself. Is a story that you can step out of, and if the story changes, then what's good and bad changes. Like in some stories and some ethics during human time, like killing people is going to be good. 
I mean, in like a in the not in the Nazi story, killing people is good, um, right? Which is crazy. Even for an individual, <laughs> even for an individual, depending on the circumstance, like we're hunter gatherers, like killing other people is often good, right? It's good for your genes. It's good for your kin. It's good for your tribe. Is it good for like? the net welfare of all the humans on earth? No, but like, is that even a relevant network? At, uh, uh, is that a relevant um, metric at that point? Like now it seems like human welfare is this relevant metric for whatever reason, right? So, so killing other people is a bad thing, but it's like, it's actually a super tricky question is like, is w what is evil for net human welfare is probably damn good for your own genes sometimes. Like opportunism, is good for your own genes and absolutely negative for your counterparty, right? And so there's an interesting thing that happens where, like, if you have a single game between two maximizing humans, evil is good because evil means that you probably win that, that exchange. And if there's no more exchanges, that's what you ought to do. That's the shelling point. But there's something about, like, society, like, people interacting over an iterated game where, like, evil is actually... is is. I was going to say it's suboptimal, but it depends. Evil is more optimal on a, on an or on a singular game than an iterated game, certainly. You guys listening to Levered Pods? Um, killing people is levered. <laughs> <laughs> Do not endorse that. Unless, this episode is sponsored by Murder. <laughs> unless they're Kurt Cardano Maxi, like, don't kill them. <laughs> This, this, this episode is sponsored by Smith and Wesson. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I think, honestly, the part about good and evil and whether, like, it's, um, you know, whether it might in, like, be evolutionarily adaptive to be, like, to kill other people, I think kind of comes back to your point about, like, religion being this mechanism of, like, so, social cooperation that we kind of, you know, once you get schooled in the whole atheist school, you're like, oh, religion is just completely made up, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but it, there there are adaptive parts about, like, you know, like um, enabling social behavior so that groups, uh, like everyone in the group is good to each other. Um, and that it evolved probably as a way to stop people from, be, like, being selfish, right? To get out of prisoners' dilemmas so that people can actually cooperate. And, then, and, and that's, again, the importance of stories. Like, if you have a really good story that motivates good behavior, people will absorb that story and do good things. Um, and same thing with bad stories. Uh, so uh, it's like, how do we, it's, yeah, how do we escape all killing each other? Well, maybe it's, we come up with stories about how, you know, every, every life matters, right? Um, and now you can't break that story once right. you, once you like really uh, absorb it. Uh, that, that story also plays into, into, um, the, the foothold that veganism has, right? Like every life matters, including animal lives, right? Like that, that, that underpins that story as well. If, if levered listeners, if you guys are interested in exploring the religion as a mechanism for social coordination, check out Darwin's cathedral. Good rip. I think, uh, this is kind of a, a, a bit of a, a non sequitur, but, um, an interesting thing about stories is they usually have the in tribe and the out tribe. And so people kind of like, these are the good guys. I'm with the good guys. And then there's these like evil bad guys that are outside of it. Like obviously politics, uh, whether real politics, crypto politics, they break down like that. Um, it's like my tribe, your tribe, red, blue, BTC, ETH, et cetera. Um, and so 
there's a uh, there's this like philosopher Rene Girard who talks about how like society actually starts when there's like this founding murder, um, and so the way people come together and they stop from competing with each other, like we have this mimet like a uh, mimetic competition like I'm, i want to be like tj or sam and we're competing over the same things like we we both want to be uh you know like crypto rich and so we're fighting with each other like how do we end up cooperating it's like oh we all turn around and we kill the <laughs> we kill the there's this founding murder where we where we kill the outsider that believes in a different crypto and so now we're all together um and then our story, like the religion, found like it is founded on that initial murder, and we like ritualize it, um, which is kind of a crazy idea. But it, 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 you kind of see it popping up, like this in in group out group, like storytelling, right? Like Republicans and Democrats, like their whole message isn't really about the good they're doing; it's about the bad side that they're fighting, which yeah. is each other. Yeah, um, that's such a good point. I, I remember watching the. Um the presidential debate and like Biden's like whole, like his whole speech or what every question was about what Trump does wrong. Like literally that's all he would say. It's just, Oh, he fucked this up. He fucked that up. And it's like, bro, what are you going to do? And he wouldn't even, he didn't even talk about it. It was just about how fucking wrong Trump was. Um, and the other thing I was reminded of when you, when you're talking about the in group out group, is the whole GameStop, like GME thing, like in the subreddit, it was this narrative of like, oh, we're fucking over the hedge funds who screwed my parents over in 2008 and you know, all this shit, we're fucking over the banks. It's like, that's the, that's, it was like this very, very narrative driven, like we're the good guys, we're the little guys, like underdog. And, um, and it's like extremely, extremely powerful, right? Even though it's, it's much more complicated than that. And it's like, okay, who are you really fucking over, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's like the most powerful narrative is like this, like the narrative framework is like in group versus out group, good versus bad guy. It, it, it is interesting how you see time and time again, like the, um, the collective or the, the common enemy being a greater, a stronger unifier than like our common virtues right like you see that time and time again like with um like in the u.s in the 50s right there was so there was so much civic cohesion in the 50s right and so you ask like why did that happen is it that like the u.s had something endogenous it was building on was it building off like the back of a world war ii victory was it building off like a closing of the wealth gap and an emerging middle class or was it strengthened off this like collective communist enemy right that was emerging the 50s 60s 70s and like same thing with with the bot like like when i see biden he, like he seems this is such a spineless example right like instead of extolling your own benefits your own value that you're bringing to the table the entire focus was why is the outgroup bad and like you think about like why why is is the is the loss narrative stronger than the gain narrative and I think it's because like losses do loom larger than gains to humans, right? Like the, the loss of an equal magnitude to a gain is going to hurt more than the gain benefits because like ultimately we are trying to survive. And I wonder if that plays into this in-group, out-group thing. I've always felt like that was super odd 
Like when groups rally around the negatives of something else, as opposed to their own inherent virtue, like it immediately get, get, gets me personally, like deep into cynical questioning mode. Like what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah, dude. I, and honestly, when I saw, um, when I saw that debate with Biden, I was like, man, whoever his you know, publicist is or whatever, it, it, it was kind of genius because it's like, I mean, <laughs> I don't mean to like get political or anything. I mean, I've, I fucking voted for the guy, but like, he's not fucking likable to me, at least. I'm like, dude, this guy sucks. Right. But it's like his whole thing is like, okay, we know he's not that likable, right. but like that guy's worse. You know what I mean? That, <laughs> right. like, that was the whole thing of the debate. And it's like, um, it's kind of genius, right? Whoever thought of that is like, bro, you're not going to win this on your merit. You're going to win it on yeah, the lack of merit from the other guy. You know, <laughs> I think, I think there's like a life cycle of so, every like yeah, group yeah. entity. Like they start off smaller and their their out group is some like big established entity right and like if you think about a startup they're like like apple was like this when they started like we're not going to be ibm or like we're going to be different and so they're like growing really fast and they're like you know it's like they still have out group dynamics but it's mostly like positive because the whole pie is growing and everyone's so bought into this like into this uh um growing organism and then it like kind of hits an inflection point and growth slows down. And then there starts to be internal fighting, right? Instead of there being this outsider that we care about and we're all bonding on, we start fighting each other. And, and like in big companies, they, they lose track. Like they, they, it, it becomes internally political, right? Everyone's fighting for turf and they hate the other vice president. And like that's where America is right now, right? Like we're not fighting with anyone else, which I guess is good for the rest of the world. We're not being imperial. Um, it, fighting could be like it doesn't have to be physical like we could be trying to invent better things because we're trying to stay at the top but instead we're just arguing with each other internally we can't build anything we can't make our own mass we can't like we can't up up regulate the you know the amount of care we can provide uh for sick people but we're just going to argue with each other you know and i think it's a sign of a decaying institution when all the like the in tribe out tribe is internal uh, you know, which makes me kind of worried about America. Like, um, that's really interesting. Where, and I like how you kind of said, it, you know, when the whole pie is growing, it, honestly, to bring it back to crypto, um, <laughs> the, uh, it, 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 I got that feeling like that maybe during the, the Bitcoin conference, you know, it's like everything was bearish as fuck. So it's like, they're kind of like more pissed about altcoins than they, than they nor if Bitcoin's price is going up, they're like, haha, like, everything's up only you know it goes up um but then once it's down they're like yeah that other shit is you know e even more so they're like pushing this narrative of like oh it's toxic and you're gonna lose your money um yeah, yeah. i see that i see that well i think that's a i think that's a good rip i also think um like, i don't think we, f we really need to conclude anymore you know yeah like, I feel like you listen to the episode, you listen to the whole episode, like, it's not like, it's not like a book, right? Like, your, your attention can Skip cover the, the hour. Yeah, like, yeah. I feel like the conclusions are always, uh, are always underwhelming anyway, at least mine are. Yeah, yeah, the, yours yeah. are very, mine are really good, though. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> mine are <clears throat> tremendous. You know, I... I... I think I think the conclusion is you know thank you for tuning in to the this leverage story. 
of three lads knowing nothing but trying to know a lot. <laughs> oh, that was a good one. That, that one had some some good ups, some downs, turns. As, as usual, it like got more exciting to me. Like like I always started, and I'm like, oh man, like where are we going with this? And then like 15, 20 minutes in, it gets really exciting. So hopefully, uh, hopefully people stuck around that long. But yep, thank you to everyone for for tuning in, and we'll see you next. Deuces.